Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm delighted because this is our Christmas episode. I've never done a Christmas episode before. This is a first. We've had Christmases as Writers on Film, but I've never had a Christmas-themed episode. And I have Jeremy Arnold, who has written uh, Christmas in the Movies, the revised and expanded edition, 35 classics to celebrate the season. And this is done under the auspices of Turner Classic uh, Movies. And, and this is an amazing, amazing, beautiful book to look at. It's got some great pictures in it, as well as these 35, 35 movies. And, um, well, welcome, Jeremy, and thanks uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, John. It's a real pleasure to be here. The first thing I was delighted by was when I was reading your sort of preface to the, to the book, you uh, included On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is one of those films that I always associate with Christmas. And yet, you know, that's the diehard for people my age, I think. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's one of my all-time favorite movies, period. Certainly, it's my favorite Bond film. And, I, you know, is it a Christmas movie? Well, I'm sure we'll we'll get into the issue of definition as we talk, because that's really what these debates always boil down to is competing definitions. I really thought about including it as a full-fledged chapter or entry 
in the book. But in the end, I decided since it's sort of on the margins of truly being a Christmas movie, in my view, I thought it would actually make a much more interesting uh, example of a film to talk about in the preface as a way of raising the issue of definition and how hard it can be to define Christmas movie. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons that it is one, and there are a couple of reasons that maybe it isn't. And I sort of just leave it there for the reader if they haven't seen it to maybe go check it out if they find if they find the, the few sentences I devote to it interesting. Because of course you have there uh, there is an actual scene in the film which is set at Christmas Eve. It's a romantic scene between um, George Lazenby's James Bond and Diana Rigg uh, as La Contessa. There is a sense that Christmas isn't just a time period which is which the film uh, takes place, but also it's a time period where you would watch this movie. This movie would be on television. Yes, and I think that the way it is most strongly a Christmas movie is in the sense that the season is conducive to James Bond, finally, for the first time in the movie series, falling in love, genuinely and the audience believing it, which is no small feat given the films that had preceded OHMSS. Uh, but yes, he proposes marriage to Diana Rigg in a barn in Switzerland on a snowy Christmas Eve. I mean, it is late at night on Christmas Eve when he, he proposes. And it's almost as if that's what it takes for James Bond of all people to find it in himself to actually propose marriage to someone. Uh, so it and it's a really beautiful scene, and of course they they play it beautifully. Uh, and Christmas also drives the the surface plot of Blofeld's scheme in this film. You know, he, Christmas presents to the to the girls that he keeps up in his Gloria are actually devices to help you know spread this poisonous uh, nerve agent or, or whatever it is. And there's a Christmas song in the movie. Uh, do you know how Christmas trees are born? Which I personally can't stand, but it's there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's orchestrated very nicely by John Barry. Uh, one, of, one of his best scores. Uh, but really, it's, you know, James Bond falling in love. Uh, there's a reason that it happens during the Christmas season. And he, it's even in a manger. They fall in love in a manger, just as if uh, that you know the Christmas associations weren't clear enough. So true, so true. It's it's a very, I mean, it's it's given extra romanticism that scene because of these meager you know surroundings for sure. And so um, let's talk about definitions then, because of course the debate rages every year about. Die Hard, is it a Christmas movie? Isn't it a Christmas movie? I think your point, the, the way you approach it is extremely convincing that you can definitely see it as a terrorist organization having its plans foiled by John McClane or John McClane's plans to meet up with his family being foiled by the criminal organization, which makes it much more Christmassy because it's a family trying to get together in the end. Yes, and what's really important is that that perspective of John and Holly McLean trying to re uh, reconcile with each other on Christmas, that is how we enter the film as the audience. That's what the film is about until uh, Alan Rickman and his band take over Nakatomi Plaza. And so that, it, that has the effect of grounding the audience 
and a certain perspective on all that is to follow. Because even through the film, as the action starts and John McClane springs into action, uh, it, the film never loses sight of this relationship issue that he has with his wife. And he has to find some uh, redemption around that, which he does find in the course of uh, being an action hero. It is actually the most common type of Christmas movie if you look at it through the prism of a family trying to reconnect or some sort of dysfunctional family trying to resolve their dysfunction. That is far and away the most common uh, theme or storyline of Christmas movies. It's just that there are some that take it to different variations, historical time settings, action settings, romantic settings, musical settings, comedy settings. Um, the list is is endless. Uh, puppetry settings. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, and there are all sorts of other aspects to Die Hard that I think make it a Christmas movie. You, you asked about a definition. My definition is any movie of any genre in which some aspect of the Christmas season plays a meaningful role in the story. The season has to be meaningful to the audience's experience. And as I say in the book, the season can mean so many different things. Uh, we think of it primarily as a time of joy and family togetherness and positive transformation, love and compassion. But it can also easily amplify loneliness, cynicism, uh, commercialism, a sort of disgust with commercialism and feeling that the season is insufferable or overly saccharine. I think we all experience all of those emotions to some degree every year, <laughs> sometimes more than once during a single day as this <laughs> as Christmas gets closer. But what it means in what it means in, in uh, uh, dramatist terms is that there's a whole spectrum of emotions and stories that can be Christmas movies if they link Christmas to whatever the driving emotion of the film or the character's journey is. And in some cases, it is the joy and love and compassion and Christmas helping uh, helping lovers find their romantic love with each other. And in other cases, it can, it can really underscore loneliness and despair. And uh, in a way, those are even more interesting. Mm, loneliness and despair. I mean, in a, in a sense, we could move quite swiftly and quite, quite, easily to it's a wonderful life because that film begins with a sense of of loneliness and despair or or yeah i mean it it does it kind of, you know it's it's a film essentially about uh, an attempted suicide absolutely it opens with george bailey uh, on a bridge contemplating suicide and one could legitimately argue that the entire movie takes place as he is standing on that bridge having this fantasy these thoughts in his mind that make up the rest of the film other people might say well it's, it christmas doesn't even enter the film until the very end which of course isn't true on any level because it is clearly christmas eve when the film opens but in terms of the story development actually getting to the christmas period uh in a real way yes that happens towards towards the end but I think that that loneliness and despair that he feels and which also very powerfully comes through in the scene in, in Martini's bar where he's praying for 
heavenly guidance. You know, I'm at the end of my rope, show me the way. Very powerful scene, very moving. If you don't have those scenes of darkness and despair, then the catharsis of the film, the joy, the probably the most joyous ending in all of cinema, uh, maybe up there with the Alistair Sim, A Christmas Carol, that is not as powerful if we haven't been taken to the depths of despair along the way. I mean, this is It's Wonderful Life is a very traumatic film to, to experience. And I always forget. I think we all always forget bef as we go into it again every year watching it, just how traumatic it becomes. I mean, the, the scene where where Jimmy Stewart is yelling at poor Thomas Mitchell over losing the eight thousand dollars. And it, that sequence ends with Tommy Mitchell putting his head down on his desk and sobbing. Mm. I mean, he could be on the verge of suicide in that moment. Uh, it's it's very traumatic. So uh, it, it it's a wonderful life gives us a complete emotional experience, I think. And, you know, that's, I think, what we welcome at Christmas time, because it is sort of a complete emotional uh, experience. I love uh, the the one time that I always begin to cry in that film, which is just like it. I've seen it a hundred times, but it seems to push a button is when the chemist starts hitting George as a boy and he's he's hurting his bad ear. And for some reason, that just hits me. That's so, and he's saying, don't hit me anymore. Don't hit me. You put the, the medicine in the wrong bottle. You didn't mean to. And it's that just, I, I'm, I'm filling up thinking about it. That scene is, I don't know why, but it, that presses my button immediately. And it gets me sobbing before, before even the, the heavy lifting has begun. John, I'm tearing up just listening to you recount the scene verbally. <laughs> that's that's how I feel about it, too. Um, it's a beautiful moment. And, you know, it it not only shows the effect that George Bailey is having on those around him, which is such a key component and sort of point of the story, but it it also is sort of a preview of the end of the film where all the characters come to George Bailey's rescue. And the the way that that feels touching to us has sort of been anticipated by this little moment with, um, with uh, oh, why am I blanking on the actor's name who plays Mr. Gower? He's a very famous uh, silent film actor. Um, but in any event, that, that does sort of give us a, a taste of what is to come. Absolutely. I mean, one of the, one of the things about the film is how, it shows Bedford Falls as well as being a place which could be uh, this fairly nice community where everybody sticks together and everyone appreciates George and is saved by George. Or it could be this sort of hellhole, Duke, you know, Duke joints and Gloria Gay Graham has essentially become a prostitute, the sort of happy girl. And then... And then there's also, uh, I, whenever I watch it, I always have a, a slight doubt that while I'm watching it, sort of bad Bedford Falls sort of looks a bit more exciting than good Bedford Falls as well. So it's like I'm torn between these two versions of a small town America. Do we want good Bedford Falls? But then, then in bad Bedford Falls, the cop is a killer. The cop draws his gun and starts shooting as soon as he can. It's It's really crazy how complicated this film is. 
Yeah, it's really wonderful. I always feel the same way, John, when I see the film. When when we get to Pottersville, I always think Pottersville looks like a pretty fun place. Like I kind of like to go there for a night on the town. Uh, <laughs> but and by the way, of course, the actor who plays Mr. Gower is H.B. Warner, the great H.B. Warner. But um, Pottersville, uh, you know, yes, it can we can look at it and and sort of jokingly half heartedly you know feel well it's a fun place to be fun to go there but you know clearly in the world of this movie on its own terms it's an ugly alienating cruel place uh you know the the scene where they take gloria graham away is just vicious really um and you know uh, george bailey going to the cemetery uh i mean it, you know and seeing uh his own grave um, I'm sorry, seeing the grave of his his brother who died because George wasn't there to save him. Um, this is this is sort of this film's version of the uh, Christmas yet to come in A Christmas Carol. It's it's dark. It becomes almost a horror movie. It it, it looks like a film noir. This sequence. I mean, mm. it really is Christmas noir. Uh, the Pottersville scene, very bleak and fatalistic and pessimistic. Um, it just, you know, drags one down as noir does. I'm sorry. I just lost my train of thought, John, you can edit this part. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. But I mean, that's, it is interesting that you, you have this element of, um, the supernatural in it's a wonderful life, Clarence, the ghost and, uh, the intervening, the ability to show this alternative reality philosophically i start to think do these people all exist or is this a mirage is this an alternative universe uh then it makes me wonder if like there's something about christmas which makes this sort of supernatural with a sort of christian framework but but very not conventionally christianity um you know, does it allow for it? You know, Charles Dickens is is not a particularly supernatural writer usually, and yet for the Christmas Carol, for his Christmas tales, he seems to to really go in for that. And this film feels very much influenced by that sort of version of the supernatural as a sort of plot device, which which can work uh, to to explore family dramas and personal psychology. I think that's an excellent point, and it. It first of all, it it underscores just how influential Charles Dickens was and always has been and still is when it comes to not just Christmas movies, but the way that we as a society think about Christmas time. Uh, you know, the the idea of transforming to the better version of yourself that was created by Dickens, and yet it's one of the things we most associate with the season. Uh, certainly in terms of of our entertainment, our, our storytelling, but also, you know, if you want to be more compassionate on Christmas, you want to give money to the Salvation Army, whatever it is, um, you want to maybe uh, go out of your way to treat someone who gets on your nerves a little more nicely, um, maybe even if it's a crazy relative coming home for Christmas time. So the the other thing that illustrates is how Christmas movies are very conducive to the supernatural, mm. whether it's Santa Claus, uh, elves, uh, ghosts, uh, disembodied voices, um, 
you know, creatures like gremlins. I mean, they're all they're all sorts of of versions of this. And I think that we are more willing to accept them because Christmas is sort of a supernatural time. You know, we we grow up believing in Santa Claus and then we we find out that that was just a fantasy. It's a magical time in many levels. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to disillusion you. (laughs) The third thing that that illustrates is is that It's a Wonderful Life, you know, I, I always forget that it begins after the very opening. No, with the with the very opening, we're in outer space and we we see stars and galaxies flashing around and the idea is that it's God and angels talking to each other about George Bailey. I always think this is a, such a hokey sequence, um, but it does ground us to, as an audience, believe that this is the way of things, that this exists. And that's what a good movie does. It grounds the audience in its reality right off the bat. This is so important, especially with musicals, so that the audience will accept the singing and dancing and the the sort of journeys into unreality. Uh, But really any movie has to do that, has to set its boundaries, its framework, and its, its reality. And if it does it well, then the audience will stay with it and accept it and go with it. And... So when when Clarence arrives, uh, we are delighted and we believe that he really is George's guardian angel. And we can delight in the fact that everyone else, you know, thinks he's crazy because of it. Um, It actually is. It's rather empowering for the audience because we know that the people who are calling him crazy are wrong. Um, So it's it's fun on that level, too. It makes me one of the things that you uh, talk about in the book when you're talking about It's a Wonderful Life. And we will obviously we're already beginning to reference loads of other films. And so we will move on to to other films. But um, I wrote an article once for The Economist about uh, the making of snow um, and uh, the way they the originally they sort of painted uh, cornflakes. And then that didn't work because of the. Uh, the noise that would be picked up by the microphones as people walked around. And the guy who made the snow for It's a Wonderful Life was a special effects guy who did this. But I wanted to add a dark element to your knowledge, uh, Jeremy, and I hope you don't mind. But that guy who whose name currently escapes me, but who created the special formula for snow for It's a Wonderful Life. Go on, what's his name? Uh, Russell Shearman. Russell, Russell Shearman. He died um, making a film called Shark. And do you know how he died? He was eaten by a shark. Hey, I, I Now that you mention it, I think I had come across this at one point, but I had forgotten. And yes, that is too horrible to <laughs> contemplate. The poor guy. He made snow for It's a Wonderful Life. That's, that, he doesn't, doesn't deserve that. Absolutely. That, yes, that, that is dark. Um, I mean, his invention lived on for many years, and it's a version of it is still used today as one of many ways to create snow, fake snow for movies. But what he did was he he worked with his team, and they just experimented with all sorts of uh, solutions and, and mixtures to create what ended up being a mixture of uh, fomite, which is the primary ingredient in fire extinguishers, and water and soap and sugar to some degree. And they shot it out of these canisters uh, 
at really high force, way up into the air, and up that they had these giant fans constructed on a scaffolding, which were operated uh, each by a, a crew member who could tilt the fan up, down, left, right, in all sorts of ways to aim the, the snow that was being created from this mixture up in the air down onto the set. And they could create a beautiful, soft, you know, uh, romantic snow. They could create a hard, wind-driven, you know, almost vertical snow, um, all, all different kinds. And it looked realistic. Uh, it was quiet. And the actors could speak their dialogue and move around in the snow without having to later go to a soundstage and uh, redub their dialogue, which was usually what was necessary in movies that had used cornflakes uh, as snow. Uh, Capra knew that he would have so much important dialogue in the snow, and that snow itself would, would play such an important role in the storytelling. It really does. Uh, I mean, it, it's the way we know George Bailey is back in, in the real world in, in Bedford Falls when the snow starts up again. And of course, you know, what would that sequence of him running through Bedford Falls shouting Merry Christmas, what would that be if it wasn't also snowing pretty hard? I mean, it, it's, you know, the ultimate in Christmassy snow. Uh, so yeah, it, it was a really profound invention and it won an Academy Award. It won a scientific and technical Oscar a year or two later. And I think the wording on the award was, uh, you know, to, to Russell Shearman and his team for their method of simulating falling snow on motion picture sets. So it was specifically for falling snow, not, not just for snow that's already on the ground. You know, that had often been created by, oh, ice and cotton in the silent era, and also for many years, asbestos, before anyone knew how dangerous that was. Mm. So mm. He, he, he might have saved quite a few lives by, uh, by spearheading this switch. Also, the snow looks much better than uh, in many modern movies where they use CGI snow, which doesn't look good. Or Ridley Scott always has a way of using, I think he uses a mixture of paper. And it, it, Ridley Scott snow always um, is really, you can really see that it's not snow because it goes up. It sort of swirls around and goes up, which mm -hmm. snow does not normally do because of gravity. Wow, that's interesting. I'm going to have to look for that now in a Ridley Scott movie. Yeah, watch the first scene of Gladiator. Actually, in Gladiator, I think towards the end of the battle scene, it's actually really snowing in Ireland where he shot it. But like in the camp where the snow is, it's always going, it's sort of drifting around more like pollen than it is like snow. It's um, it's all over the place. Um, moving on, you mentioned musicals earlier, and I want to move on to some really classics uh, that we that. There are so many classic musicals. I mean, obviously, Holiday Inn, uh, White Christmas. I mean, can you get more Christmassy than a film called White Christmas? And Meet Me in St. Louis, I think, uh, are all included. Um, uh, what What is the affinity between Christmas and musicals? Because I, I, I suspect that it's similar to that supernatural thing, that you're, you're living in a heightened time of year, so maybe you're willing to accept a heightened form of fiction. Yes. And, and uh, you know, a, a musical provides for the audience a journey into unreality, you know, a journey into a world where 
where people sing and dance and that's how they express themselves and their emotions to each other and where the the meaning of the story can come through you know if it's a good musical i would say uh so i think that you know i think going into some unreal plane of existence is parallel to this idea we talked about earlier of the supernatural um sort of magical elements being more acceptable uh, at christmas time and in christmas movies um the irony though <laughs> what i just said is that meet me in st louis is particularly innovative because of the way it integrates its musical numbers into the story so realistically and it does this so smartly it was directed by vincent minnelli and it's one of the greatest musicals uh and it it begins with these characters of the family walking around the house interacting with each other uh speaking dialogue to each other but then just as they walk around they they break out into the song meet me in st louis and they pass it from one character to another and each character will sing a few bars of it as she's shaving or going into the kitchen whatever it may be and it it has the effect of equating singing with speaking and being and just existing in this you know daily life experience it's as natural as breathing or talking and uh, that goes a long way towards helping the audience accept all the other musical numbers not all of which are integrated in in this way some of them are quite stylized um but by the end of the film when when the story actually gets to christmas time for the last quarter or so of the running time you have judy garland singing meet me in st louis to margaret o'brien and you know we don't question for a moment that this character would be singing a song to her sister you know in in the world of reality of this film she's singing it's not a, a stylized fantasy musical number you know like uh like the trolley song for instance uh but the the emotion of the song both lyrically and musically is all the more powerful i think because of the way we've been grounded to accept musical sequences at all in the film and you know some people will will argue that meet me in st louis is not a Christmas movie because the vast majority of its story is not set at Christmas time. Uh, I would say that even if it had less than 25 or 30 minutes devoted to Christmas, but it still had that scene of Judy singing Meet Me in St. Louis uh, and and what, what follows it, that would be enough to make it a, a Christmas classic because that song and that sequence, it captures so much so many almost conflicting elements that we associate with the season uh you know there's a, a wistfulness there's a, a longing for for something that is no more um there's a fear of the future uh and there's a, a real loneliness to those words it's very melancholy that as we've said really taps into something that we all feel i mean as we get older we tend to think wistfully about loved ones who are no longer with us and the holiday season is a time to do that and a time to take stock of things uh so it's really one of the most beautiful sequences really in in any movie i, I don't mean to be hyperbolic but it it really is there, there's a reason it has endured the way it has i think that's really interesting and, and touching that idea as well of uh we love 
Christmas movies because there's a poignancy to them. There's a sense that time is being marked and it's often like a young character is on the cusp of womanhood or, or manhood and there's a sense of transition and coming of age as well as, um, you know, the season that is passing. Yes, and there are all sorts of Christmas movies that delve into different stages of of human growth. You know, young children, teenagers, young adults, older people, the the truly elderly. You know, because each uh, haven't really thought about it in this way before, but I guess each period of our life is usually conducive to you know, certain ways of approaching the holiday and experiencing it. Uh, and maybe that, you know, certainly that wistfulness aspect uh, uh, and longing for those who are no longer with us, that, of course, increases as we age for obvious reasons. When we're younger, we're more attuned to the exciting, magical, anything is possible feeling of Christmas time. You know, there, there's a scene in a movie I love, The Holly and the Ivy, which maybe we'll talk about later, uh, where Celia Johnson speaks of that moment where you wake up on Christmas morning and you're still lying in bed. This is not a direct quote. It's I'm just citing what she says. But that, that, that moment where you wake up and you you feel like something has happened overnight. Something has changed. You're 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 in a new world, a new reality. And that is such a great description of what it feels like to wake up on Christmas morning. You know, even to this day, you know, I, I and unless you're really cynical, I think we all enjoy that. Yeah, it's like the feeling that you have when you wake up and it's snowed in the night and you, you just suddenly, the, the world is transformed and there's something magical in the air. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. I love waking up to a fresh coating of snow, although it doesn't happen much here in L.A. <laughs> well, you know, die hard. You can have like the paper fluttering down and turning into snow at the end of, uh, at the, end of the movie. Um, I mean, one of the things... Just to just to uh, something to mention generally, uh, and we're going to dive into some other films as well. But just to mention generally, when I first got your a copy of your book, and I was sort of thinking, and I got it a, f a few weeks ago, so I, I wasn't particularly in a Christmassy mood, and I was thinking, oh, Christmas movies, I'm not sure about this. And then you start leafing through it, and you start thinking, that's a good movie, that's a great movie, that's a great movie. And even though I would never really think of christmas movies like as a genre because i mean it is a trans genre genre if you like there are so many really solidly good movies that, that don't need christmas for you to watch them even though they are undoubtedly christmas movies and it, and it takes a book like yours to kind of focus your attention for a minute and go oh wow look at how many you know look at how many movies that there are that are, are proper as you say about meet me in st louis or it's a wonderful life or or i would argue uh even more recent films like like elf they're five star movies regardless of their you know, there's no need to apologize about oh it's i like watching it at christmas it's i know it's you know it gets me in the mood they're just great movies in and of themselves i love what you just said because it describes exactly the process that i went through six years ago when I wrote the original edition of this book, um, the, the idea for the book actually came from my editor at Running Press. I had just done a book called The Essentials, which was a companion to a Turner Classic Movies series that profiles on TCM the you know greatest films ever made that everyone should see if they want to be serious film 
uh, goers and cinephiles. And she said that TCM wanted to do a book on Christmas movies and was I interested? And my first reaction was, no, why would I want to do that? Stupid. It's, it's you know, it's these are treacly films, uh, you know, insufferably saccharine, as I said earlier. And but then I thought about it and I, I decided to actually look at some of these films and look up what are considered to be Christmas films. And I came to the same realization that you just did, which is these movies, a lot of them are really, really good. And they're not about Christmas in terms of characters who are, you know, trying to mount the greatest Christmas they've ever had. You know, that is not the story of any of these films. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Christmas, I noticed, especially in the 1940s, which was the richest decade for Christmas movies in Hollywood, Christmas is more of an organic uh, storytelling device. It it represents family in a lot of these films, especially in the 40s, which was so in which families were so wrecked by the war and then had to struggle to rebuild themselves, often without the return of family members from the battlefield. Um, and so you see Christmas being used as a way to represent family in stories that are somehow about families whether they're coming together, breaking apart, feeling complete, whatever it may be, there are all sorts of variations. And the point is that Christmas in some of these films, it's only in there for a short bit of the running time. In others, the setting is entirely on Christmas or over the Christmas period, the couple of weeks leading to New Year's. What that does is it it shows that the filmmakers were thinking of the season as a way to inject meaning into a story that in and of itself has nothing to do with Christmas, as you just so rightfully pointed out. And I think those are the films that have endured best because they're not about Christmas. They're about emotions that are linked to Christmas. And yes, we could watch them at any time of year, but when you do watch it at Christmas time, you're even more willing, I think, to accept that linkage and usually feel good and positive about the way Christmas is working in this story and how it could work in our own life. Um, some of them are quite a bit darker too, but that's good. We we need some some darker ones to counterbalance all the light ones, <laughs> I say. And even the light ones, as we've talked about, most of them do have real darkness in them. Mm. Um, even Elf, you know, Elf is one of four movies in this book that contains attempted or contemplated suicide. 
uh, there's a scene where Will Ferrell is standing on a bridge, and it's meant to evoke its wonderful life. Yeah, it's it's in there in a movie that we remember for you know it's great comedy first and foremost. Um, the other films with suicide in them, by the way, are The Apartment, which has Shirley MacLaine attempting suicide on Christmas Eve, and The Shop Around the Corner, in which Frank Morgan tries to hang himself in his office in the shop because his wife is having an affair. And, you know, Shop Around the Corner is one of the most sparkling, delightful romantic comedies ever made. And yet it has this scene of Frank Morgan attempting suicide. So that's a real uh, coup, I think, for a film like that to to make that scene feel so at home um, in what is otherwise a romantic comedy. I think I got off the point a little bit. No, that that's 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 great. That's that's really. Um, I think that that. I mean, I I'm ne- I'm very rarely asking questions so much as just commenting, and uh, um, so so I don't think there's a point as such to keep to. I do want to uh, bring up one film that you've included in here, which I feel doesn't get enough attention and is uh, is a film I've only recently discovered myself, which is um, Remember the Night, the 1940 film starring Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, I think, who's the male actor? Is it Fred McMurray is the... Fred McMurray. Yeah, yeah. And it, I think this is a, a film that should be better known and it's a wonderful Christmas. You know, the Christmas is, is right there in it as a central point. And it is, and it is about redemption for both characters, and it is about characters uh, having the strength to change and learn from each other. Uh, I, I just feel that this is a Christmas. This sorry, this is a film, fill a film full stop that should be known better, and a Christmas film that should be known better as well. Absolutely, it's one of my all-time favorites. And you know, since I was just talking about the shop around the corner, it's interesting to compare the two in terms of the way that Christmas is used. In Shop Around the Corner, as the love relationship between Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan grows and intensifies, Christmas becomes more present in the frame, uh, visually, uh, on the soundtrack. We, we become, it, it, the story is getting closer to Christmas Day, and the film is filling up more and more with Christmas imagery as these two are falling more and more in love. And so that's a way that that film links Christmas to the love relationship that's forming. Uh, in Remember the Night, Christmas is used uh, even more directly. It is used to actually define these two characters. There's there's a scene where Fred McMurray takes Barbara Stanwyck to her childhood home in Indiana, and she had a really rough upbringing and had a terrible home life. And when we get to that house, it's a cold, dark uh forbidding looking house you you it almost looks like it's vacant uh but she rings the bell and someone lights a candle and comes to the door and her her mother greets her basically with the line what are you doing here what do you want and it's christmas eve and played by georgia kane this is this is i i think maybe the iciest mother in movie history she is the absolute worst she's so cruel she's so mean and it's a very difficult scene to watch. They go in the house. It's it's dark. There's no there's no warmth, no light, no music, no sense of Christmas time. And Fred McMurray, one of my favorite moments in the film, 
he says to Barbara Stanwyck, well, we'd, we'd better get moving if we're going to get to whatever town he lives in, in time for Christmas. He's decided to take her home to his childhood home uh, and give her the kind of Christmas that she wants and deserves. And so then they get to Fred McMurray's house, and it is a beautiful house, warm, inviting, filled with light, a Christmas tree, cookies baking in the oven, uh, you know, a family, a mother, her sister, and uh, nephew or cousin, I can't remember exactly. And Beulah Bondi, as Fred McMurray's mother, welcomes Barbara Stanwyck in the warmest way that you could possibly imagine. And in contrast to Georgia Kane's welcoming, or lack thereof, of Barbara Stanwyck, it is, this is the scene that's equivalent to the one in It's a Wonderful Life, where Mr. Gower uh, and George, young George Bailey have that scene where he's been hitting him, and it's so poignant. This scene where Beulah Bondi immediately takes uh, Barbara Stanwyck in her arms and welcomes her into their house for Christmas, not having known that she was coming, uh, is so touching. I think one thing that moves me the most in Christmas movies is the way that characters show kindness to each other. It's not something I feel that we often see in movies generally. It's not usually a beat or a plot point. Mm. And when it is, when someone is extraordinarily kind to someone when maybe they don't have to be or you weren't expecting it, um, it's tremendously moving for me. Uh, because it sort of brings these characters to the level of the souls that they are and is a reminder that we all want kindness. Now, I'm, that might sound a little treacly in and of itself, but I think for most of us, it's what we want and what we appreciate uh, giving to. But it's it's kindness which is sort of hard one because it's coming from people and sources that are unexpected. Uh, then when it does come, it feels like it's more earned. It's like the stern father giving you a smile of of, of approval. You know, if if he was a father who gave you smiles of approval all the time, you know, the reason it's moving with with Barbara Stanwyck is this is a film written by Preston Sturges. This is a film that is um, that has. A, a, an intelligence that is not willing to give you any treacle and until you fully deserve it. And I would say the same is true of someone like Billy Wilder. I watched The Apartment. I find it incredibly moving. And I find it moving because it comes from the same man who wrote Ace in the Hole, who was uh, had a very... Um, uh, uh, a view of human nature, which, which which was very, some would say, realistic, and some would say cynical, and some would say nihilistic almost, yet to find the possibility of rege redemption in these people's lives and, and the possibility of kindness in interacting with each other, uh, to me, feels, yeah, if we could do this all year round, it would be great, but if we can't, Christmas will have to do. Absolutely. Uh, that is so true. And, uh, you know, I think when... When Beulah Bondi welcomes Barbara Stanwyck and Remember the Night, it also immediately defines Beulah Bondi's character. It it tells us immediately the kind of woman and mother and person spirit that she is, and it's linked again to Christmas time because it is Christmas Eve, and that's what they have arrived for to spend Christmas there. So you you get the sense of Christmas working as a force 
in a lot of these films that nudges characters together, that is a catalyst for certain types of emotions and story developments to happen, for characters to transform, for characters to be kind, the list goes on. Uh, and that I, I think is sort of akin to the magic that we would like to believe happens at Christmas time where Christmas can make us be nicer to each other and more compassionate. Uh, and so, you know, when, when you see it happen in a movie, like remember the night, it goes a long way towards making you believe it could happen in, in reality. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a beautiful film and the tropes of Christmas continue so strongly. It's the, the, the Christmas that Beulah Bondi's house experiences is almost a cliched, you know, perfect. We've been informed that Barbara Stanwyck never had a Christmas like that. And so in its somewhat stylized way, this is the ultimate version of the kind of Christmas that she's been longing for. Uh, and that also helps her fall in love with Fred McMurray, which is another element of the plot. Yeah, Preston Sturges wrote a brilliant screenplay. He wasn't crazy about the way the director, Mitchell Lyson changed the screenplay. Uh, Lyson edited out a lot, uh, several scenes in the, uh, uh, before filming started, and then again after filming had been completed. And Sturgis was, was a little unhappy with this because Sturgis had written the film with an emphasis more on the Fred McMurray character. He was the more dominant and heroic character in the film. And Lyson, I think rightfully, built up the Barbara Stanwyck character so that the two would really be equals for the audience, uh, which I think works perfectly for this film. Uh, so... You know, this was the last movie, though, that was made from a Preston Sturgis script before Sturgis started directing his own scripts. And, you know, he always said that was the reason he became a director, because he was sick of seeing his screenplays ruined <laughs> or just altered in a way he didn't like uh, up to that point. So but, you know, when when you see Remember the Night or Easy Living, the other film that lies directed from a Sturgis screenplay. I think they they hold up beautifully, and and Sturgis was uh, maybe uh, overreacting a, a a little bit. Although, thank goodness he did start directing his own films because the ones he did make are positively brilliant. There's no arguing that. Absolutely, masterpieces, masterpieces, com completely. I think. Um, so I've recommended one film that we uh, that that is, I don't think is as famous as it should be. Are there, is there a film? in the book that you feel uh, hasn't got its fair due and you you sort of included it in the book partly to sort of give it a, a bit more visibility that you that maybe our listeners haven't experienced and you would say go and go and watch that one yes i'll be seeing you 1944 joseph cotton ginger rogers uh this was produced by david selznick's company uh but it was specifically produced by dory sherry who was well known for having a really strong interest in uh, social issues, topical uh, social interest um, issues. And uh, this is a film uh, made and set during World War II in which Joseph Cotton and Ginger Rogers are on a train at Christmas time and 
they meet through a series of basically lies to each other about their situations in life. It turns out that Ginger Rogers is on furlough from a prison sentence for having accidentally caused the death of her employer who was about to sexually assault her. That's one still, unfortunately, topical social issue the film covers. And she's sort of a, a broken woman, a broken soul. And she's very worried about being accepted by the family members that she's going to visit for Christmas. And Joseph Cotton, he claims to be on leave from the war, but he's actually uh, on uh, leave from a uh, hospital and a mental institution where he has been recuperating and being treated for shell shock, which is now known as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. There's another very topical social issue of the time and a very unusual one to include in a movie that was actually made and released during World War II. That didn't happen very often during the war to sort of uh, make the audience aware of these particular repercussions and horrors of war that could be inflicted on American soldiers, on any soldiers. And so they begin this sort of tenuous romance. And as the film goes on and they spend Christmas at her relative's house and a little bit like Remember the Night, it's, you know, Christmas is is a beautiful presence in the film that helps nudge them towards love. But it's not just that. It also helps nudge them towards being vulnerable with each other and opening up to each other and uh, revealing the truths about themselves. And that is really what the thrust of the story is. And it's linked very clearly to Christmas. And it is, I find it such a touching, poignant drama, beautifully acted by Cotton and Ginger Rogers. I think it's one of the best things she's done. And this film was an enormous hit in the Christmas season of 1944 in America. Huge box office numbers. It, it made millions of dollars. And I don't understand why it's just never shown anymore. People don't know this film. I had never heard of this film before I uh, I did the first edition of this book. And uh, it's out there. It's never been a lost film. It's on Blu-ray. It's easy to find. It just doesn't get shown very often on television or in revival houses. And I think that would be a really touching discovery uh, for people. And also something I want to mention, I, I touched on this earlier, but the 1940s were such a rich decade for Christmas films because, again, of World War II and how it affected uh, families on a very large scale across the country and the world. Uh, this is this is a film that is so directly linked to that because of the Joseph Cotton character actually being a war veteran. Uh, the war is directly linked to that idea. In a lot of the other films of the 40s, uh, the war may not be so uh, explicitly present in the story or the character's concerns, but I think it is still the reason that those films resonated in the 1940s. Even something like Little Women, the 1949 version, uh, which of course has Christmas in it because the Alcott novel has Christmas in it, uh, it was just the right time to do a remake of Little Women because of its natural focus on family and the idea that the most important thing to these characters and Little Women is the family 
being together and staying together and loving each other. Uh, so I'll, and I also think that, and I wrote about this a little bit in, in the epilogue and elsewhere in the book, I noticed that times of great national trauma tend to engender a run of Christmas movies. The 1940s, especially after World War II, many, many films that either were Christmas movies or have Christmas in them were made for close to a decade. After 9-11, two years later, we, we get Elf and Love Actually and Bad Santa. And then a couple years later, The Holiday. And those films did so well, I think in part because audiences wanted to come back together again. They wanted to heal. They wanted to to have their faith in the world restored to some degree. Now, I'm not saying these movies restored everyone's faith in the world. I'm just saying that it, it spoke to that need after 9-11 shook everyone so much and suddenly made people realize that the world wasn't so safe, that, that America, the, the homeland wasn't so safe and the world was dangerously unstable. And I, Christmas movies are sort of a comfort food in the way that they can combat those feelings. And the uh, Elf and Love actually did so well and, and caused such a stir and almost immediately became annual viewing, which they remain, uh, that that prompted Hollywood and moviegoers to make countless Christmas movies ever since. And in a way, they haven't really stopped. Uh, but very few can reach the level of annual viewing that Elf and Love Actually and A Christmas Story and It's a Wonderful Life and so many others have achieved. Uh, and when you try and make it happen, I think you're less likely for it to happen. The great exception to that is Elf. John Favreau specifically said he wanted to make a Christmas movie that would reclaim New York from the idea that it was a site of a terrible terrorist attack. And he also wanted to make a movie that would become a Christmas movie that people watch every year. So in that case, it worked. But I don't think love actually was made with that in mind. Uh, a Christmas story wasn't. The very term Christmas movie did not exist back in the studio era. It's a quite recent term. Uh, Frank Capra never said he was making a Christmas movie. Uh, the term was the term has been applied retroactively to a group of movies that we have discovered use Christmas to a large degree and which we enjoy viewing at Christmas time for that reason. Um, it's, it's a Wonderful Life may even be a big reason for the term Christmas movie coming into being because it was in the public domain for many years in the 70s and 80s and shown around the clock on local television stations in America. And that was how people rediscovered the film and came to want to see Christmas in movies at Christmas time. That's sort of sort of how people think about the term Christmas movie. And um, since then, uh, you know, now it has become a genre and filmmakers do make Christmas movies with Christmas imagery to release at Christmas time. A lot of the 40s movies were not released in November, December. They were released at all times of the year. Miracle on 34th Street came out in the summer. Uh, didn't even have Christmas in its advertising or in its trailer. Can you imagine making a trailer for a Miracle on 34th Street and not mentioning Christmas or showing Santa Claus? Uh, it's astonishing, but they did it. You can find it online. Those guys in the 40s, they were idiots. They didn't know how to market anything. <laughs>
Well, the, the movie became a classic sleeper hit. Audiences discovered it and it played for so many months. And yeah, Fox didn't know what it had on its hands at all. Um, I, I've last, well, last, we've got one more question after this, but, but a, a question I wanted to ask you um, uh, to, to sort of close off on. Uh, there must, I, there are notable missing movies in here and you've you've you know it's obvious it you're on a hiding to nothing you've, you're gonna miss movies out that you really want to include i mean a couple of movies that i was sort of like uh i hope i haven't i i i read it through so i hope you're not gonna say no no wait a second that's on page uh so, blah, blah. but um the muppet christmas carol I, I adore that film. It's a musical. It's got the the supernatural. It's a Christmas Carol. But you you included it in the Christmas Carol roundup, so that that sort of you get a pass on that. Eyes Wide Shut, I argue, is a Christmas movie. Uh, I think it was last year. I was doing a radio piece for the Times newspaper, and they asked me for a recommended Christmas movie, and I said Eyes Wide Shut, and I I could hear the gasps on the other end, and I said, "Look, we're not all, always with our families at Christmas. We might just be with our significant others. It doesn't, you know, it's not always children. It's it's you know, the apartment isn't a children's." film um so but more importantly for you what is a film that that was the 36th you know christmas movie that you you just couldn't you couldn't get in under the wire well this may this may be a cheat but i do say in the preface that the james bond film on your majesty's secret service was one that i really thought hard about including and i wanted to because i love the movie so much i've even been to visit many of the locations uh but um in the end, I decided it was better used in the way that I used it. There, I don't think there really was another particular title that I really, really, really wanted to put in, and and I couldn't. Uh, you know, the the subtitle of this book, thirty five classics to celebrate the season. It's a little misleading, and I kind of wish that I had eliminated it from uh, from the title all from the cover altogether because. I write about many, many more films in the course of this book in these special chapters or essays that I had included here and there through the book, talking about different facets of film history. There's a section on film noir that I'm I'm very happy with. I really enjoy delving into the relationship between Christmas and film noir. I'd never thought of that. That's so, that's so interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it, noir and Christmas they really came of age at the same time in the 1940s. And World War II had a profound effect on the development of both, but in uh, in diametrically opposed ways. Uh, the war affected noir by, by giving Hollywood the idea of being able to tap into the, the pessimism uh, and trouble that veterans were having coming back and trying to reintegrate into a changed American society. And so the world seemed unstable and unsafe and, and new and uh, dangerous almost. Christmas movies, as we've already talked about, were a response in the other way, uh, a way to try and uh, help help speak to families that were trying to rebuild themselves in a positive way. So Christmas movies guide characters up and film noir drags them down. <laughs> You know, film Christmas movies are, are usually about optimism and positive change. And noir is about pessimism and fatalism and bleakness. And Christmas pops up in a lot of noirs. In fact, I just wrote an, an article for 
the Noir City magazine, which is an e-magazine published by Eddie Muller and the Film Noir Foundation, in which I expanded my chapter on film noir to delve even more deeply into some really interesting examples like Cover Up and Blast of Silence. Um, but when when Christmas pops up in most noirs, it's usually just for irony or tonal counterpoint to the sinister doings of the story at Christmas time. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting subject and uh, I, there, there are a lot of noirs with Christmas in them that I truly love, like Lady on a Train or uh, the Suspect with Charles Lawton, even though they're not really Christmas movies. The, the season isn't really lending true meaning to the main story of the film. Uh, and I also just want to say about Eyes Wide Shut, I like Eyes Wide Shut, and I agree with you. I, I would call it a Christmas movie. Uh, certainly the framework of that story is a married couple trying to work out their dysfunction. And as we've said, that's the most common story in Christmas movies. Um, I think the reason it's not in the book is the same reason that some of the more explicit horror movies at Christmas time are not really in the book. I do mention Black Christmas, but mm. I don't go into it in great detail. And this is because uh, the book is a Turner Classic Movies co-publication. And I think they well, I know <laughs> that they, they wanted to not go to the really dark places so they did, much. They didn't want to go to the orgy. Yeah, they didn't want to go to the orgy. <laughs> so they wanted to keep the book a little more family friendly. I, of course, resisted making something that had to be family friendly. So I found other ways of going into darker aspects of uh, some of these films. But I just didn't. I didn't do Eyes Wide Shut. And... Um, Honestly, the the horror movies, the slasher movies that are set at Christmas time, I think they tend to be really just that. They're set at Christmas time. And I I think you, you get horror elements in something like A Christmas Carol um, or It's a Wonderful Life. There are scenes that are horror-like. Uh, but in terms of, you know, blood and gore movies, I I think it would be a tough case to argue that they're truly Christmas movies. Okay. Okay. I would, yeah, I, I would, uh, in my dream version of your book, I would swap Love Actually for Eyes Wide Shut. That would be my substitution. But <laughs> I'm not your editor, so I I have a limited power um, uh, over future ex expanded versions of the book. Final question, Jeremy. Um, and let me, I just want to say something. Oh, yes, please. I just wanted to say a quick word about Love Actually. When I first did the book, one of the first things I told my editor was, I am not including Love Actually. I do not like that movie. I don't want to watch it again. I don't really want to think about it. And that is too saccharine for me. But kept hearing, you know, I, I came to the realization that I actually had to include it because whether I like it or not, it has become annual viewing. It comes back every year and it has really resonated with a very large audience. And so I, I looked at it again and thought about it, and it's still not my favorite, but I, I don't hate it anymore. And I actually came to admire it for the way it does something really interesting in the world of Christmas movie history, which is it creates a family out of a group of disconnected characters who all exist in their own storylines, but in the way that they are edited together, they come to feel like a family to the audience. And I think that is 
a way that the movie really becomes a Christmas movie. You know, in Shop Around the Corner, the store employees become like a family. The same is true in in some other films, but this is the only one I know where the characters themselves don't even know each other for the most part. They don't interact with each other, and yet they, to us, feel like a family. Uh, with a comic one, a tragic one, a poignant one, etc. So it is quite interesting on that level. Okay, I'll 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 let you I'll let you have that I'll let you have that. That's that's the best argument I've heard so far. Um, my personal opinion is it's not even a movie. <laughs> it's not not only not a Christmas movie. I don't even consider it. But that's me. I'm being vitriolic. I'm being cynical. I apologize. Um, Final question, Jeremy. Uh, could you, we're coming up to Christmas. Other than your own book, which of course everybody who's hearing this is instantly running to the shop to buy, hopefully wearing uh, earphones so they can hear the rest of the podcast. Um, what other book, film book, would you recommend for our listeners? Well, it's always hard to pick just one because like you, I have so many of them that I love. Uh, and I'm tempted to pick one by my great teacher and friend and mentor, Janine Basinger, who's a brilliant film scholar and has written many wonderful books. In fact, my Christmas movie book is dedicated to Janine. Um, but I'm going to pick a book that actually Janine steered me towards many years ago, and that is the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers book by Arlene Croce, C-R-O-C-E. It was written in the early 70s. And I love this book because it achieves a really wonderful balance of accessible writing, um, which is also scholarly and thoughtful and never loses the sense of enthusiasm that we have as audience members for Astaire Rogers movies and movies in general. It's just a, a wonderfully readable book and really, really interesting, really smart analysis of how those musicals work so well. That's a, I, I, I'm such a big fan of those movies and uh, the idea of um, of looking deeper into them without taking away the magic is just it's it's definitely something that I'm going to be putting on my list now. Oh, great! I'm very happy to hear it, and uh, you can in, you can indirectly thank Janine Basinger for that too. Then, <laughs> yeah, I, I've got to have a I've got to have a come on again as a guest because I've had a once, and um, yeah, once was not enough. Definitely, <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, it's I still love talking to her for hours about movies. Uh, yeah, she's wonderful. I heard that episode, and it was really a wonderful listen. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be hard. It would be hard not to not to have a great episode with the great Janine. I don't think. Um, listen, Jeremy, I, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed your book. It's a book that I think I'm going to be returning to over the Christmas period and dipping into. I'm definitely going to be picking out some of the book, the films that I haven't seen that are in the book, and um, uh, such as your recommendation. Uh, such as The Holly and the Ivy I've never seen. So those are two films that I'm going to be um, uh, hunting out and, and watching. But uh, most of all, thanks very much, Jeremy, for coming on to the podcast Writers on Film uh, and, and sharing your expertise with us. I so enjoyed this conversation, John. And I just want to, on a party note, tell you that the Holly and the Ivy is available on Blu-ray with an audio commentary track by me, 
So you could watch the film and listen to me blabber on about it uh, <laughs> as you watch it again, if you like. <laughs> that's, uh, that's excellent. Brilliant. I'll watch it first and then I'll watch it with you uh, with you talking about it. Not blabbering, talking. But uh, oh, and I, I've, I've got to say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Jeremy. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Sean. I have, hope you have a very happy holiday season and new year. 